I ask that you turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. As we continue our Advent theme this season, we've been looking at the birth of Christ through some different lenses. We've talked about the shepherds. We've talked about uh, Zechariah. We've talked about Mary. We've talked all these different areas around the birth, and we haven't quite yet hit the birth until next week. And as we think about the birth of Christ, it would behoove us to go back to Isaiah to see this prophecy. And so Isaiah chapter 9 displays the love of God by his mercy, how he sends something merciful. So turn there, if you will, and we're going to read Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times, when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to the Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you, and they rejoice at har- as they rejoice at harvest time, and as they rejoice when dividing the spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and bloody garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Father, as we approach your word this morning, Father, I pray that we would have ears to hear and and eyes to see the beautiful nature of what you are teaching us. Lord, give us your spirit that we may be illuminated by your word, that we would be guided by your truth. Father, if there's anyone in this room who is distracted by the things of this world, that you would give them laser focus this morning on what your word has to say. Father, be with me and and sharpen my mind that I may speak forth your truth with boldness. God, as we consider our town of Sierra Vista, Lord, it seems like there are areas here that are so dark, that there is great darkness in the land, and that we ask that you would shine your light in this city. Father, I lift up uh, First Baptist Church, uh, Pastor Jesse, as he preaches the word this morning. Lord, I lift up David Carnes of Summit Baptist, that he would uh, proclaim your glory to this city. Father, we pray for their prosperity, that you would grant them success in reaching souls in this community. Lord, we know that you are the reason for this season, 
but it's so easy for all the other things to crowd out what is truly important. So, Father, as we come this morning to worship you, uh, we come with reverence, with fear, with awe at who you are and what you've done. Lord, humble us today as we approach your text. And we ask these things in, in Christ's most beautiful name. And all God's people said, amen. So many of you know that this week I, I went and I served in a, um, with a program called Mighty Oaks. Mighty Oaks Warrior Programs is a, a veteran organization that uh, helps veterans that are struggling and first responders who are struggling with the effects of war, um, alcohol abuse, um, drugs, you name it, the gamut of human experience and struggles. And this week was extremely difficult. Uh, there was quite a, quite a few challenges. One, we had two service dogs show up. One of them, not so servicey of a dog, uh, causing fights with people. Right? This dog was very aggressive. And then we had two men try to fight each other. Uh, we picked up one guy from the airport, and he grumbled the entire drive, the entire two-hour drive from the airport. Uh, very prickly type person, a porcupine, if you will. And not only that, but two of the structures that we used to house people were destroyed in a storm the weekend before. And so those of us who were leaders, half of us had to stay in town, which was a 45-minute drive to the program. And so we would get up at 4 in the morning, we would drive out there, we'd spend all day, usually get back around 11 or 12 at night. Um, and it was just an exhausting week. Physically weary. And not only that, these men are struggling with some of the darkest things that you can imagine. These men are struggling with um, some very serious childhood abuse. These men are um, struggling with very serious wartime experiences. Intense suffering, if you will. And these men, they, when they came, they, they seemed to have lost all hope. One of them even said, if this doesn't work, I'm going home and I'm going to kill myself. That's the type of guys that we get in this program. Um, very few of them have relationships with God. Some of them will claim to be Christians. But they are in a dark and desperate place. They have no hope. Many of them have done every possible psych treatment that is offered. Many of them have spent 12 years in counseling. Many of them were just worn out, suffering at the hands of many physicians. But it's so amazing to me that as the week goes on, these men, they leave the program happy, joyful, high-fiving. That prickly guy, he was giving everybody hugs. Right? He, was, he ran up to me and gave me a hug out of nowhere, which was just weird. But he hugs, lots of hugs, and, and happiness and joy. Everybody's having a good time. Camaraderie was back. And it's just amazing to see the transformation after just a week. And you may be wondering, what was the special secret? What special technique, what secret methodology, what Gnostic wisdom did you offer? We opened up the Word of God and told them what it said about their struggles. That's it. God and His Word transformed these men. The victory they experienced was not because team leaders were so talented, but it's because we tell them what God says about their life and struggles. And then as they surrender to God's plan for their lives, they get true and lasting hope. 
And our passage this morning shows us that when God is left out of the picture, the world seems to be in a very dark and in a very real and spiritual sense, it is pitch black. And the Bible is very clear that when God and his word is abandoned, things get dark and people lose their grip on truth. Doesn't that sound a lot like today? Our world seems to have an ever-expanding kingdom of darkness. There seems to be a rise in crime, uh, lust and theft and alcohol addictions, overdoses, spiritualism and occultic practices, witchcraft and the like seem to be spreading like never before. You know, there's even this fascination with darkness and dark things. Uh, More and more, I'm watching Christmas shows, and they're getting darker and darker. They're getting more and more wicked. Why is that? But not only is this darkness in an external, worldly sense, but I think even in our own hearts as Christians, we often tend toward unbelief. I think we often tend to distrust what God says to be true, and we forget more than we remember the promises of God. But yet, into the darkness, this passage bursts forth with good news. God is so for us that he gave himself to us. The Gospel of John opens with some of the most powerful words ever written. I'm going to read it to you. I want you to just listen in light of what this first advent sounds like. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and all things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. You know, John seems to understand this passage. And then, of course, in Isaiah, we see the light is Christ. And he declares that there's an overwhelming darkness. So let's look at verse 1. So in your Bibles, read verse 1 of chapter 9 with me. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to the Galilee of the nations. Uh, Up until this point has been showing that darkness is coming upon the land. The the Assyrians are invading. They will destroy, and it will be hard. And then, verse 1, he goes, Nevertheless, nevertheless, the darkness is going to be pushed back. Matthew 4, 12 through 17, quotes this passage as being fulfilled by Jesus. Six to 800 years later. Six to 800 years later, from this passage in Isaiah, we have Jesus. And Matthew says that this Jesus is the fulfillment. Let's look at Matthew chapter 4, 12 through 17. When he heard that John had been arrested, this is Jesus, he withdrew into Galilee. He left Nazareth and went to live in Capernaum by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. 
land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, along the road by the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who live in darkness have seen a great light, and for those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From then on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. It's interesting that the king, this, this Jesus that is coming, is contrasted greatly with the king that was at the time of Isaiah, King Ahaz. If you know much about King Ahaz, you know that he was a very wicked ruler for the people of Judah. That He even barred up the gates to the sanctuary. He barred up the temple so that no one could go in and worship the one true living God. Instead, he encouraged the worship of idols. He put up idols everywhere else and tried to distract away from this king that was to come. But also, the area is super important. Naphtali and Zebulun. It's not really a a respected area. It's one of those areas that is conquered often by invading forces. There's no real good stronghold positions uh, over there. And so it's settled by a lot of foreigners. And for the people of Israel and, and Judah who are supposed to be set apart, this would be something that would not quite be what they're looking for. It's going to it's going to mingle with the people. It's fascinating that this location that Jesus Christ came from, this area, is an area that the Romans and the King Herod were spending money on to improve. So 800 years later, King Herod and the Romans wanted to build up this area. They wanted to build palaces. They wanted to build things. And so they began to spend money to improve the infrastructure. And if you think about it, if you're going to build something... Who do you need? Builders, construction workers. What was Joseph's, Jesus' father's profession? Construction work, right? Carpentry. God the Father planned and accomplished his plan, orchestrating history to do exactly what he promised. But what is the cause of this darkness that these people in Isaiah are experiencing? What is the, the source? Well, it's it's really evident from the chapters before, and so because I'm so excited about this, I want to go back. So we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 8, starting in verse 6. What is the cause of the darkness that the people are living in? Look at verse 6 with me. Because these people rejected the slowly flowing river uh, water of Shiloh and rejoiced with Rezin and the son of Ramalia, the Lord will certainly bring against them the mighty rushing water of the Euphrates River, the king of Assyria in all his glory. It will overflow its channels and spill over all its banks. During rainy season, we know what it looks like for water to overflow its banks. If you've ever been in a wash when it starts to sprinkle, you know you need to run. You need to get out of there because the water is going to, to flood down that and wash out everything that is there. The Lord will certainly bring against them the mighty rushing water. And in verse 8, it will pour into Judah, flood over it, and sweep through, reaching up to the neck, and its flooded banks will fill your entire land. You are going to be overwhelmed. You are going to be flooded. It is going to be hard, people of Israel and Judah. 
you are going to suffer. This is the warning that God has provided. And the reason is because you've abandoned the living God. You have sought for yourself other idols. And then he ends that verse with the word Emmanuel. God with us. I, I, I sometimes think that when he says that, it's really more of God help us. God be with us because we need you. But then in verse 11, Isaiah warns his own followers, his disciples, if you will. Verse 11 says, For this is what the Lord said to me with great power to keep me from going the way of this people. So we have the same pattern again as we see over and over in the Old and New Testaments. There's two paths. There's the way of destruction and the way, way of life. And what Isaiah says is, this, my disciples, this is the way of life. Listen, do not call everything a conspiracy that these people say is a conspiracy. I don't know about you, but 2020 has been a time of conspiracies, some of which seems to be really coming true. But anyways, that's another story. Do not call everything a conspiracy that these people say is a conspiracy. And then this is my favorite. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be terrified. If I was the disciples of Isaiah, I would say, Isaiah, but you just said we are about to be invaded. If you've ever lived through an invasion, you know it's not fun. You know it's not just an inconvenience. This is world-shaping, world-changing. What's going to happen to our children? What about our homes? How are we going to eat? It says, do not fear what they fear. Don't be afraid of what they're afraid of. Why is that? Listen to verse 13. You are to regard only the Lord of armies as holy. Only he should be feared. Only he should be held in awe. I hope that's striking you in your heart this morning. Are you afraid of COVID? Are you afraid of dying? Are you afraid of economic collapse? Isaiah right here says you should not be afraid. If you belong to the covenant of the living God, you should not have to fear. This is tough stuff, guys. I don't know about you, but it's something we want to wrestle with. Verse 14, he will be a sanctuary, but for the two houses of Israel, he will be a stone to stumble over, a rock to trip over, and a trap and a snare. If you do not belong to the living God, you should be afraid. That should be your default. The men who came to our program this week who did not know God, they are, they are very aware of what it means to be, to be afraid. The wicked flee when no one is pursuing. Why is it that they're bearing them judgment? It's because they do not fear the living God, and they're seeking after their own cisterns, as Jeremiah talks about. Verse 15, many will stumble over these, they will fall and be broken, they will be snared and captured. And then verse 16, bind up the testimony. Seal up the instruction among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will wait for him. 
He says, hold fast to Scripture during this time. Hold fast to the word of the living God and wait for salvation from Him. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not always the most patient person. Uh, many times I'll pray, like Peter tells me to pray, to cast my cares on, on the Lord. And then what do I do? I say, okay, God, I've given that to you for about 20 minutes. I'm going to bring that back so I can worry about it some more. Right? I don't leave them on his shoulders. I take them on myself. And what we see here is he says, wait for the Lord. Wait for him to give us salvation. How slow are we to do this today? Then we have a warning. The people in darkness will try and draw you in with them. They want you to be afraid with them. They want you to be worried with them. How can they control you but to get you to be afraid? Look at verse 18. It says, Here I am with the children the Lord has given me to be signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of armies who dwells on Mount Zion. Verse 19. When they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the spiritists who chirp and mutter, shouldn't the people inquire of their God? Man, this is one of the most powerful statements in Scripture. Shouldn't a people inquire of their God? Man, these men that come to that program, broken and destroyed, some who claim to be Christians, have been going to the spiritists of the wizards, They've been looking for someone to give them wisdom. And they've been hearing them chirp and mutter to them, talking in weird things. And what do they need? They need to go to their God. Shouldn't the people inquire of their God? When the, when the people of darkness who love darkness, they will try to draw you in. And our world is so full of this idolatry, this false worship. Not only that, but... People will try to draw us in with the demonic. The Bible is clear that idol worship is the worship of demons. Psalm 106, 36-38 says it this way, They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and daughters to demons. They had an L-shaped ambush and they walked right into it. They shed innocent blood. The, the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, so the land became polluted with blood. The darkness is coming upon the land of Israel and Judah because of their idol worship. And what Isaiah says, what the psalmist says, is that idol worship is worshiping demons. Demons use idols to get footholds in the lives of people. Second Chronicles 11.15, Jeroboam appointed his own priests for the high places, the goat demons and the golden calves he had made. What do I mean then, 1 Corinthians 10, 19, that a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And many of you sitting in this room today are like, amen, amen, I, I appreciate that, that's right. But do you know that idols are not just carved wood pieces? They're not just stones? But idols can be more. In fact, we know that Scripture tells us that idols are not always material. But desires can become idolatrous. 
And when you, be, when you start clinging to an idolatrous desire, you are worshiping demons. This is a very scary place to be. Think about this. The people of God in Israel have turned from God and are now worshiping demons. And then God has handed them over to this reality and they have sunk in deep, deep darkness. But Isaiah tells the people to cling to the promise of God. In Isaiah 8.20, he says, Go to God's instruction and testimony. Go to God's instruction and testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, there will be no dawn for them. Anything that is set up against God is going to collapse. The only place, the only sure foundation is what God says. Cling to the scriptures, friends. Why is this? Because God's providence, God's planning in history, we get great comfort in this. Think about this. God, from before the foundation of the world, planned the rescue mission of love. Every detail worked out and nothing left to chance. The location, Zebulun and Naphtali, the timing, the time of the Roman Pax Romana, all planned according to the counsel of his will. The glorious truth should give us unspeakable, unshakable hope. Christians are not people groping for hope in the dark. We have the light of God displaying in the full brilliance the plan of God. When the tire goes flat on your way to work, when the hot water heater goes out, when you stub your toe, again, God is working all these things together for good. That good is the growth and faithfulness to Him. When the yurts at the camp go out and I have to drive 45 minutes to get to uh, work, quote-unquote, God is working that out for His good. There was a purpose behind it. None of that time was wasted. No sleepless nights are wasted. No tears. Tears are wasted. In fact, it helps us to learn to trust God for everything in every moment. This is our lifelong goal, to grow in faithfulness to our God. Matthew 4.16, quoting this passage, says, The people who live in darkness have seen a great light, and those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. There's a very real darkness to those veterans. They were experiencing a lot this week. But it resulted in lives transformed by the gospel. The light shined in a dark place. So what is this light that shines in the dark place? Well, it starts with the dawn. Verses 2 through 5 of this passage that we're studying. I know I've been spending a lot of time everywhere else but this passage. 2 through 5 talks about the dawn. In very poetic form, the rest of the chapter indicates some metaphorical and descriptive language. So what is this great light and where does joy come from? It starts with the addition of good things. Look at verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. New has arrived. Something new is being revealed. Light. Just as dawn starts with the sky lightening slowly, and little by little the sun begins to peek out over the mountain or the horizon, so too the light coming into the world 
seems to slowly reveal what is happening. Not everyone understood what the birth of Jesus Christ meant. Very few people grasped the reality. In fact, King Herod seemed to be a little shocked when it arrived. And when the wise men came, where was this newborn king? He shuddered inside and became afraid. Why is that? Because there was a threat to his authority. The light is now in the world. And then we see, you have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time. The big harvest party has arrived as they rejoice when dividing the soils. The victory has been won. The battle has ended and the men are able to relax and enjoy some feasting. This nation enlarging, I I can only think of as the engrafting of the Gentiles. The Gentile nations are added to the people of God, bringing rejoicing, celebration of good things. But there's also the removal of bad things. Verse 4 says, For you have shattered their oppressive yoke, and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. We have two historical references in this vocabulary. We know that Egypt was often referred to as an oppressive yoke on the back of the Israelites because they were slaves to the Egyptians. And so the rod and the staff, the discipline of foreign rulers is finally broken. Salvation comes from the Lord. This is an act of God. This coming thing is an act of God. Second, they mention Midian. The defeat of Midian in Judges 6-8 through is very interesting. In fact, This reference to the day of Midian is so interesting, I want us to turn there. Well, you can stay in your Bibles if you you want to just trust me, but I would say, look this up, write this passage down. Judges chapter 6, verse 35. He sent messengers through all of Manasseh who rallied behind him. He also sent messengers throughout Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali who also came to meet him. Then Gideon said to God, If you will deliver Israel by me, as you said, I will put a wool fleece here on the threshing floor. And then he has this whole test that he does for God. But he, you know who he's fighting? The Midianites. Just an interesting side note. I was reading Genesis. Do you know why there were so many tribes of Israel? Because two sisters were jealous of each other and they started giving up their handmaids to their husband to have more babies. The jealousy of humanity provided a great platform for the redemption and growth of his people. Just a side note. has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. I just was really interested in that. So this reference to Midian is so interesting that it reminds us of the day of God's help, where 300 against a vastly bigger army God was obviously the one who destroyed the enemy and saved them. No human glory brought forth. And so in this way, God is going to burst forth by light and have salvation. Just like those jars that the 300 men standing around the Midianites, they smashed it and held out their lamps. Light shone into darkness. There's three aspects of suffering that's mentioned here. I'm going to be moving a little bit quick because I'm only on point two of 15. I'm just kidding, not 15. (laughs) Three aspects of suffering is mentioned in this coming deliverance. You have the yoke of oppression, 
There's a burden. There's suffering that is endured through long hours of labor. We have the rod on their shoulders. That suffering that is inflicted as it is laid against their backs. And then you have the staff of the oppressor. Is suffering arising from hostility, like a taskmaster beating them. Many of the men who we met with, they suffered extreme childhood abuse. And when I, when I, when I, I mean more than just physical and more than emotional, if you get my meaning. It was extreme suffering that they experienced. And not only that, they placed themselves under a yoke of slavery through getting, uh, pursuing alcohol as a means to, to satisfy them or satiate them, to deal with it. Not only that, then they went to war and then they experienced great oppression at the hands of their enemies. Though they were victorious outwardly, though they destroyed Taliban and, and all of them, they came back and they suffered greatly to night terrors, you name it. Verse 5 describes conquest and climax, and then the final act, bloody uniforms and boots are going to be tossed into the fire because they're ruined by blood. When I was deployed, if, if we had blood on our uniform, we did not try to wash them and save them. We, we threw them in the fire. We got rid of them. Uh, in fact, most of the time when, when war is over, you want to just burn your uniforms because they're so full of junk and nasty stuff. And so in the same way, when war is over, these things get burnt. Look at verse 5 quickly with me, because I want to get to the good part. For every trampling boot of battle and bloody garment of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. The submission of this world to its new king seems to be being described here. I think this is uh, the second advent that is coming, the return of the king. So, so far we have seen how God has directed history towards this point. A light will come from northern Israel near Galilee. The light will bring peace and remove suffering. Daylight begins. Daylight is, has come. Verses 6 through 7. God declares that there is going to be a child. It will be born and a son will be given. This light promised, this, this promised child is the Emmanuel from chapter 7. We don't have time to go back to chapter 7, but know that there is a child named Emmanuel that is promised. He is the hope of the nations. Look at verse 6. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. This child is characterized by being given. Both Jesus' humanity and deity is being described here. His birth, but at the same time being given, is described. God gives the greatest gift, himself. What greater love can there be than the giving of yourself for another? This child is royalty in the highest sense. The government, not governments, there will be one ruler and one ruler with this child. All others are just imitations. The government will be on his shoulders. Remember the, the yoke and the burden, the rod that's going to be removed? It's going to be replaced with something better. And that's going to be placed on Christ. It will be on his shoulders. No longer will we be burdened with the yoke of slavery, but now Christ will take that yoke. He will take that and also create this new government. Jesus takes on the burdens himself. 
He bears our sins and iniquities, as Isaiah 53 says. He takes the shame that those men had experienced at the hands of, of wicked men and women, and he places it on himself. He bores shame. He is naked on the cross. He is mocked on the cross for us. And then we get the names. These names show how Christ will preserve through wisdom and liberate through warrior strength his people. I'm not going to go too deep into the names today, but just remember there's a reason why he's called the Wonderful Counselor. Not the Terrible Counselor, the Wonderful Counselor. But he's also the Mighty God. So not only does he offer wisdom, but he empowers the follow-through. I don't know how many people come to me for counseling, and when I tell them something, they don't often like to go and do it. It's so interesting to me. I think most people, when they come for counsel, they just want you to affirm what they already believe. And God does something different. He not only gives us the wise counsel, but he empowers us to keep it. But this son is going to be born in a manger. The son the wise men came to seek, he has four names. And these names point to the character and scope of his rule. It points to his power, his wisdom, his miraculous nature, along with the type of kingship, which is eternal and peaceful. Verse 7 then says the dominion will be vast and his prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. It says that his kingdom will increase. It is vast. Uh, you, the, the language itself really makes it sound more like it's going to be ever-expanding. It describes a huge number that could be increasing in its, in its width. This kingdom will grow progressively until all is ruled by his dominion. Christ's kingdom is expanding. The book of Matthew will show us this growing kingdom. It begins to give with the parables the description of a kingdom that has come, that has been inaugurated, that continues to grow. Really, this whole thing makes me want to respond in worship as I study this passage, and I hope you got a taste of that this morning. But we want to respond like Paul in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Just listen to this. He, talking about Jesus, is the image, the icon of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and, get this, for him. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. He is the very reason this universe doesn't just collapse and fall apart. He is the, also the head of the body of the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might have come, he might come to have first place in everything. Man, how many of you have died for your wives? That's what Christ has done for the church, and that's the example that we have. So we must die to our wives. It's so interesting to me when I go with those men, and I, they're, they're really abusive to their spouses. They live horribly. One guy, he would run off and isolate for hours upon hours or days upon days, not tell his wife anything. And I asked him, I said, man, would you die for your wife? Would you take a bullet for her? 
his, you know, being a combat guy, he's like, yeah, yeah, I would die for her. I said, why are you not living for her? Why are you not dying to yourself daily for the sake of your spouse? Man, that's a high calling that we're called to do. Husbands, we are to die to ourselves for the sake of our families. We have to imitate Christ in this. For God was pleased to have all his fullness, full, fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Our response to this message of the birth of the king is that we should worship. We need to cry out like Zechariah in Luke 1, 67-75. Listen to this. This is how Zechariah called out. Then his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. When I see the lives of those men that, that this week that were transformed, I can't help but say, Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. Regardless of the storm, regardless of all the difficulties, regardless of all the, 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 the struggle to get those men there and to help them, God has provided redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times, right? Isaiah talking about it. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. He has dealt mercifully with our ancestors and remembered his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham, he has given us the privilege since we have been rescued from the hand of our enemies to serve him without fear. In holiness and righteousness in the presence all the days. Our passage speaks of light coming into darkness. External darkness for sure, but also the dawning of salvation in our hearts. Ponder this truth this week. What does it mean for Christ to come into the world? As we see that the world around us is in great darkness, men and women pursuing whatever they think will make them happy, they will worship whatever God, and we know that those are demons, will make them happy. It would be easy for us to grow cold in our love, wouldn't it? When someone is very harsh to you, very prickly to you, it's very hard to wake up, travel 45 minutes, and bring them the word of the living God and share Christ's love with them. It's very difficult. But we can love the unlovable because we were once that unlovable. We don't have to love others because they love us. We love others because Christ first loved us. So when we find ourselves tempted to, to look away to go, we must first look at the baby in the manger. What would it take for the creator of all things to come in the form of a man? But not only that, but he went and he grew and lived a perfect and sinless life. And not only that, he went more, willing to the more willingly to the cross and died for us, then I were willingly to take the trash out for my own wife. He died for rebellious humans. And finally, this Jesus was raised three days later, placed at the right hand of God the Father as our high priest. And why is he our high priest? Because he spoke the words of life to us and revealed God to us. He is also, excuse me, he's our high prophet because he did that. He's our high priest because he made atonement in his own flesh for us. 
He is also the high king because he rules and will return with an army of angels and will make all things right. What great love God has for us that he would send his only begotten son to die for the undeserving. Friends, if you do not know him, now is the time to get to know him. This Jesus, this Christ. But if you know him, but for some reason you are overwhelmed, I, will, I want you to turn to Isaiah 8, 16-17. If you're a note-taker, write this down. If you are struggling, write this down. Turn to Isaiah 8, chapter, or chapter 8, verses 16-17. through 17. Make this your meditation. Cry this out to him. Hold fast to the word. Do not let it leave your mind. And wait for him. Wait for his salvation. Day by day, wait for him. Do not turn and seek some other idol. Do not turn and seek some other idol. Seek after your God. Because truly, those in Jesus are loved. Those who belong to him, they have the promises. Those who pursue other idols, they have no hope. They live in the land of darkness. There is no promise for you. The only promise for you is to cling to the cross of Christ. Though it may be a dark time for you, Christ promises to be with the Christian. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This week, if you are struggling with some idol, whether it be alcohol, whether it be drugs, whether it be Netflix, whether it be um, sports teams, you name it, whether it be depression, unmet expectations, boundaries, I don't know. You just list the gamut. Whatever it is, I'm begging you, cry out, Emmanuel, this week. Let's close in prayer. Father, as we approach this Christmas, we approach the, the celebration of the first advent, let us not forget the second advent, the second coming of our Lord, which should uh, stir us on to good works. Father, what blessed hope that you give us in your word that we do not have to be in darkness, that we can turn to the living God and be given hope. Lord, we do not need to worship demons. We do not need to worship idols. We do not need to cling to those things that take us from the living God. Lord, help us to drink from the fountain of living water. Father, help us to not be so simplistic that we forget how simple the word is to our hearts. Father, I pray for these men that I spent countless hours with this week, that when they go home and their circumstances have not changed, their, their families are still uh, struggling, that they are still struggling with the things that they have experienced, that you would help them to cry out to you and to wait on your salvation. Lord, I pray that you would give them the strength to obey your word, to follow your commands, to love you by being obedient to you. God, I ask these things in, in the beautiful name of Christ and in your spirit. Father, as we leave this place, may this Christmas be a time of reminder for us that we remember that a babe born in the manger is the new altar of hope, the new altar of grace, the new temple. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.